open in a word of prayer. Father, thanks for this morning that you've granted to us and forgiven us safety to get here today. I pray that you would touch us now in this time together and in the service to come, that you would teach us things and we would understand them. And thank you so much for the ability to study and to spend time in your word in Christ's name. Amen. Um, today we're starting a new topic, um, the doctrine of the church. And uh, there's a lot of topics to cover in this particular topic. Um, the name comes from ecclesiology, ecclesia, which is church. So it would be doctrine of the church. And uh, some of the things we'll be covering in the next 10 weeks or so is going to be what is the meaning of the church, what is it that we talk about. Now there's a lot of confusion on this. Depending on what circles you run into, the church is one thing or another. So we're going to talk about what is the church. We're going to talk about where did it begin, when did the church start, and again there's a lot of different debate on when did the church actually begin, and a lot of it dovetails into what is the church. Now one of the things that you're going to find as we um, work through not only this topic, but the next topic which is the eschatology, the doctrine of end times, that there's a, some systems of, I don't want to call theological systems that's going to really color where you're going to land on both ecclesiology and eschatology. Um, just, as an aside, just as a sort of an introduction, what do I mean by that? Well, in some circles that you run into, what we would call the covenantal system, we're going to talk all about this, so don't worry, we'll get there. I'm just giving a sort of a background. The covenantal system sees one people of God. In the Old Testament it was Israel, in the New Testament is the church. Um, a covenantal system, for example, would not see a future for Israel. They would not see... Um, a literal rapture. They would not believe in that. What they do believe is that there's a singular people of God. In the Old Testament that was Israel. In the New Testament it is the church. So we have, uh, as the church, have inherited all of the promises that God made Israel in the Old Testament. So there is no future for Israel. Churches like that see themselves um, very much differently than from what we would call maybe a dispensational viewpoint where they see a difference between the church and Israel. This is very important because if you have a difference between church and Israel, the church and Israel, then you have a different understanding of how the end times play out. There is a future for Israel. There is coming a day when Christ will rule his people from Jerusalem. All right? So it's going to color where you wind up on this. And a lot of this has to do also with history, how the concept of the church developed over the centuries. For example, you have a New Testament understanding of the church and then we have this whole period of a thousand years of Catholicism or so where the definition of the church was modified and changed. And so there are some people that would say, for example, that is the church's responsibility to take over the world for Jesus. We're supposed to Christianize our world. And once we get it Christianized sufficiently, then Christ is going to come back and take over for us. This is sometimes called dominion theology. Anybody here, Pat Robertson? Oh yeah, Pat's one of these guys. I remember, um, anybody remember when he was running for president? Yeah, yeah. I, got, I still got the circular at home um, where I got it in the mail. He said, if you elect me president, we'll be well on our way to presenting the world to Jesus. All right, that was his theology. He, the, this church is going to take over the world. Another view is that, no, the church does not take over the world. The church is not of the world, right? We are not to be of the world. We are in the world, but not of the world. So what happened, and, and 
just to explain how this all worked out in history, why is it that Roman Catholicism in the Middle Ages had the power that it had? Well, it goes back to their understanding of what the word church is. To them, the church is supposed to take over the world for Jesus. To them, the Pope is the vicar of Christ on this world and that all um, secular power should report to the Pope as their leader because the church is to be this, um, what do you want to call it, this militant, not militant organization, but this political organization that takes over the world and runs the world for Christ. That's their view. And that's why they acted the way they did. All right? And it all comes out of how do you view the church? If you view the church as this entity that's supposed to take over society for Jesus, you're going to view it from a very different perspective than someone who says, look, we're strangers, we're pilgrims, we're aliens, we're exiles. The church is not to take over the world for Jesus. Jesus will take care of that himself when the time is right. Meanwhile, what are we to do? We are to be salt and light. And it, believe me, there are tremendous numbers of debates. Many denominations are founded over this, and many systems of theology are over this. So this is, we're going to hit some very important things here, and, and you're going to see it really borne out as we look through these next two topics, the doctrine of the church and the doctrine of end times, because all of that is sort of works together in this thing. Hopefully I've not confused you, because a lot of this we're going to sort out as we work through this. All right. I just want you to give, I want to try and give you a heads up as to why it's important to really understand what is the church. Because if you get that answer wrong, it's going to really color the way you view society, the way you view your role in society, all right, the way you view the end times, the way you view if Christ is going to come back again or not, the way you view Israel, is all wrapped up into what, you do, what do you think the church is. So that's why we're going to talk about it. So that's why there was a pope then, because of what they, they felt that they, they, they need to create a political system within the church. Uh, and, and in doing so, they maybe with a little bit of uh, uh, Greek mythology and, and Oriental mysticism thrown in there, yeah. they come up with a pope because it, there, there, there hasn't really ever been anything written, as far as I know, that's what we use in the Protestant Bible mm -hmm. that would it, de it developed, is what it did. It developed, it developed over time. But theologically, what happened in the Middle Ages is that the, the, the Roman Catholicism in particular saw themselves as being the representative for God in this world. All right. They took on their own responsibility and created. And as such, all secular power should be under the, the church. Yeah. Right. Right. Just to keep order. But 
right. It, it, it evolved. It wasn't, Ruth Ann is right, this concept evolved into being what it was. But there were certain theological underpinnings of it. Some of them going back to Augustine. Um, one of his books, The City of God, um, had this concept in it. And, and it goes back to your view of what is the church. And again, if, depending on what answer you come up with, is going to steer you in all kinds of different directions, even today. Um, you know, for example, if you see the role of our church or the church of Christ, of God, as being some sort of political mover and shaker, you're going to have a whole different way of dealing with that than you are is seeing us as evangelistic, as a, as a place where we evangelize the world for Christ. And so what you have seen a lot of times, I think, in Christian movements today with Chuck Colson, particularly where, where I think Chuck errs on the side of we are to be a political mover and shaker. Well, the church was never intended to be a political party. It was never intended to be a political movement. Now, it is in byproduct of people's lives who are changed. But the purpose of the church was never to take over the world for Jesus. That was never its purpose. No, the Lord does work through political right. Yeah, and, and, it's, and it's not wrong for us as believers to, to exercise our vote and things like that. But when we what I'm trying to say is when we turn the church into a political movement, now we've got problems. That, that's the issue. When we turn it into a political movement, then what happens is people confuse the message of Jesus with a political movement. Now, stop and think about that. Unfortunately, I hate to tell you this, but that's really the view that most people out in there see the church as. There are people out there that see the, the church of Christ, you know, the church in general as being some sort of political party trying to push a political agenda. And they don't like that political agenda, so they reject the church out of their politics. And, and again, that's not the purpose of the church. You understand what I'm trying to get at. It's, it's one thing for us to exercise our, our civil responsibility as good citizens. It's another thing to say, as, as I got many years ago on the in the parking lot over here, a little flyer that says, "If you voted for to vote for Bill Clinton, is to vote against God, or something like that." I mean, I got that. I remember here at Church of the Open Door, somebody snuck through during the service and put flyers on all the windows and basically said, "If you vote for Bill Clinton, you're sinning." Sinning. That's not. That's not what we're about. That's not the purpose. We get our purpose all fouled up. What is our purpose? To lead people in the adventure of becoming like Christ. Now, that, that takes several steps. There's an evangelistic step. There's a discipleship step, things like that. But the point of the church on the world here is not to turn over the world, make it a Christian place for Jesus to just come back and take over once we've cleaned up the mess. We're not to clean up the mess. It's not going to work, is it? Well, was that a form of uh, being able uh, for the Romans to separate church and state by having a vote, uh, then that way they could have the church a separate entity with a head versus the, the government or state. The, no, what, what, what happened in the Middle Ages because is that the no church there. was the state. The church was the state. So, you know, when you were, when you, um, in Germany in the 1400s, 
when you were born, you were baptized. That was part of your civil responsibility to become a citizen of, of um, whatever the little place was you were. Being baptized made you a citizen of that state. You, you, the church was the state. They were in, inextricably intertwined. And that, that didn't start to unravel till the Reformation. But, but back then, so that's why, for example, um, if you, uh, back in the 1400s, if you refused to be baptized, you were considered, a, that was an act of treason. You were, you were violating civil authority. Uh, it, church was the state. Yeah, it was, it was, a, it was intertwined. Um, and really until the Reformation came along, um, that was, I mean, think about this. If you're in Saudi Arabia today, you have to be a Muslim. All right, and if you convert to Christianity, they kill you. All right, because that's considered treason. The church is the state. And that's where, you know, if you get this answer wrong, you can wind up in all kinds of messes, you know, theologically and everything else, by, by getting the definition of the church wrong. So we need to find out, well, what is it? When did it start? What is it? And what is the nature of the church? What, what's, it, what's it supposed to be like? What's it supposed to do? What's his purpose? Why did God leave the church here? There's a reason God left us here, right? He certainly didn't leave us here to fellowship. We could do better in heaven, right? He didn't leave us here to learn more about Christ because we could do better in heaven. Why did he leave us here? To help others. Yeah, to be evangelistic, to be salt and light. To, he left us here for evangelistic reasons, to lead others to Christ. That's why we're here. That's why you're here. That's why you're not dead right now. If you're a Christian, the reason you're not dead is because God has a reason for you to be here to influence other people. That's why you're here. What's the symbols of the church? Um, there's a, as you look through the New Testament, the church is seen as the bride of Christ, right? That's one of the major symbols. Uh, it's seen as a building. It's seen as the fruit and the vine. So there are different metaphors that you see for the church to help us understand the nature of the church and what the church is like. And so we're going to go through that. We're going to really get into trouble here because we're going to go through the organization of the church. All right. And um, I'm going to wear my Teflon coverings that day because we're going to not only talk about, you know, what is a pastor, what is a deacon, what is an elder... I'm going to even open the can of worms and say, what is the role of women in the church? Yeah, and I'm going to probably get, I'm going to probably get whooped on. Um, but uh, just, we're just looking at the scripture. I mean, look, we're running with the big dogs here. You're going to have to deal with this. You're going to have to answer this. And it's not going to be any fun to come to a class where you skip all the good subjects, right? Where we just don't talk about those naughty problems. We don't want to do that. We don't want to get people riled up. So we'll just gloss over it and not say it. Look, it's part of the Bible. We've got to deal with it, all right? And wherever you land on this, you're going to have to sort through it from Scripture as to why you land where you land. But we're going to talk about that. And then we're going to talk about the ordinances of the church, baptism and communion. And what are the significance of those? All right. So this is all part of this doctrine of the church. And I think you'll find it very interesting as we sort through this um, that you're going to be asking yourselves questions you never thought to ask yourself before. But you can start seeing the importance of why, why is it that we have all the denominations that we have out there? Why is it that we have all these different theological systems? Why is it that you have groups that don't believe that Jesus is going to literally come back and take his church home in the rapture? Why do they believe that? And we're going to see it. It's because of their understanding of what is the church. Alan, how do you pronounce that? Ecclesiology. 
ecclesiology. It's ecclesiology, the doctrine of the church. Okay? Doctrine of in things. Eschatos end. Yeah. So it'll be the doctrine of in things. So both, both of these will go together um, as we work through them. So the first question we have to ask ourselves, well, what is the meaning of the word church? What is it? When we, when we talk about church and when you, you see church, what is it? Well, if you look at the old Hebrew world of the Old Testament, there's a connection there. Um, there's a Hebrew word called kahal. It's found about 100 times in the Old Testament, and it means assembly. That's really the root meaning of the church, assembly. Assembly of people. A group of people that assemble together for some reason, Okay. Um, in Genesis 49, 6, Psalm 26, you have a group that assembles for evil reasons. It's just a, a group. There's a group that assembles for civil affairs in 1 Kings 12, 3 and 7. Uh, groups that assemble for war, Numbers 22, 4, Judges 20 and 2. And then there's a group that assembles for religious worship. It's just an assembly of people is what it is. That's what the, really what the root word means. It's a, it's a group, it's an assembly of people. And then when you come to the New Testament... Um, the Greek word would have understood it very well. The Greek word ekles, ekklesia. That's where you get ecclesiology. Ekklesia. Yeah, ekklesia. It means to call out. Ek out, klesia to call. Klao to call. So it's a group of, they're called out. It's an assembly. It's a, it's a group of people. All right. Um, it's a group of people that are, that are brought together for a common purpose, a common reason, a common, you know, common motive. Um, and it always refers to the assembly. It doesn't refer to the people in the assembly. It refers to the assembly itself. All right? So what ecclesia, ecclesia means, it's the assembly. It's the group of people. And theologically, what was picked up, of 114 occurrences in the New Testament where this word pops up, all but five refer to a group of people that are the people of God. A group of people that are the people of God. The called out ones. The assembly. Now, also in the secular Greek, this was used, uh, for example, um, in, a, in a city where you would call out the rulers of the city, for example. That would be an ecclesia, a called-out group. It was a group that ran the city. It was a group that participated in civil affairs or whatever. It just means a group of people. That's the bottom line. The, the, the word itself just means a group of people. Now, theologically, we understand that to mean the people of God. That's how we use it but it's a group. That's all it is. Um, so where did it begin? Where, where did the church start? Now, this is really a hotly debated issue depending on who you run into. Um, has anybody ever ran into hyper-dispensationalists? Probably don't even know what that word means. Hyper-dispensationalists. Huh? Yeah, not, but they go, but see, here, here's the thing, the hyper-dispensational view of church and end times, are, they're connected together, there's like two sides of the coin, We're, okay. The reason I say it is because there's some hyper-dispensational churches in the area, and we, you'll see what I mean here when we start talking about it. But uh, the question is, when did the people of God begin? When did this concept of church that's used in the New Testament, where did it begin? And some say, well, it began with Abraham. Abraham started it. Now, this is the view of the covenant theologians. Let me give you names of some. R.C. Sproul. Anybody heard R.C. Sproul? Oh, yeah. yeah, he's a covenant theologian. 
uh, Michael Horton, is covenant theology. In fact, most who are from the Presbyterian or Reformed background are of this persuasion. What was his name, Mike? Horton. He's written several books. Um, they're from this persuasion. Okay? Let me try to explain covenantal theology from a 20,000-foot perspective because we're really going to dig into this when we get to eschatology. We'll get deeper. But from 20,000 feet, what a covenant theologian says is that he sees um, God's dealings with man in terms of covenants. All right? So what they would say is that in the Garden of Eden, there's this, what they call covenant of works. And they'll call this covenant of works. What was the covenant of works? The covenant of works was given to Abraham, or yeah, Abraham, to Adam, which basically said, do this and you'll be okay. In other words, don't eat of the fruit and you'll be all right. That was the covenant of works. What did man promptly do with the covenant of works? Disobey it. Break it. So then we have the covenant of grace. So we have covenant of works, covenant of grace. And so God's dealings with mankind are through this covenant of grace. And through this covenant of grace, who is God working with? His elect. And so in the Old Testament, what was God's elect people? Who were they? Who were God's chosen people? Israel. So God is working through Israel as his elect nation. When Israel rejected their Messiah, what did God then turn and work through? The Gentiles, which is our understanding of church. So in the covenant theologian's mind, what used to be Israel is now the church. There's one people of God. There's one covenant of grace under which we all exist. All right. And again, I'm giving you this at 20,000 feet just to, just to try and help you understand what's going on here. There's one people of God. You have Israel in the old. You have church in the new. But it's the singular people of God, singular covenant of grace. All right. And so they see that. That the theology, they see the, the church, they see all of that in terms of this covenant of grace. That's what they call covenant theologians. Now, because of that, there are some things that fall out of that. There are some, there are some uh, what do you want to call them, uh, correlated truths in their mind that fall out of that. So, if there's one people of God, then there's one singular message, right? And not only that, but as Israel was to be salt and light and in civil influence in the Old Testament, so should the church be a civil influence and light in the new. Now there's a certain truth to that, right? Yes. All right? There's a certain truth, but they take it further. And so you have several stripes of covenant theologians. You have some that say we take over the world for Jesus, like Pat Robertson. You, that's, the, that's the heavy ones down to the softer ones, which say, no, we just need to be a significant influence on the world. But you have different stripes of that. Another thing that pops out of this is, what was the sign of the covenant in the Old Testament for the Jewish person? Circumcision. So the sign of the covenant in the new covenant, is, or the, in the church, is what? Infant baptism. And that's exactly what R.C. Sproul believes. In fact, I heard him argue this. The sign of the covenant in the Old Testament was, was circumcision. The sign of the covenant in the New Testament times is baptism. So baptism has replaced circumcision as a sign of the covenant. So why is it that Presbyterians all have their children baptized? It's not to save them. That's not what they're doing. They're identifying as part of God's covenant people. 
which decision will then be reaffirmed by that person when they reach the age where they can make a decision for them, themselves. That's why infant baptism is such a big deal to the Presbyterian Reform background folks. Because what you're doing is you're, you're identifying that child with the covenant people. Just like in the Old Testament, circumcision identified you as part of God's covenant people. In the New Testament, baptism identifies you as part of God's covenant people. Not in the salvation sense, but in the identification sense. You follow that? Because that's different than what Catholicism teaches, which says baptism removes original sin. That's different. It's different understanding. We will dedicate a child, but that doesn't... All you're doing in a dedication is you're, you're giving that child over to God, much, more, much like what Hannah did. Um, so I think there's a difference in, in the dedication. In, in baptism, there's, in, in the Presbyterian understanding, there's an actual identification of that child with the covenant people of God. All right? So there's all kinds of things that drop out of this. Okay? Also, if you have one people... Then when Israel rejected their Messiah, God turned to a new people, but he's never going to turn again back to the Jews. So as far as the Jews are, gone, are concerned, all those promises in the Old Testament, guess who gets them? We do. We get the promises. All those promises of blessing, all those promises of restoration, all of that, we get. That's their view. I'm just saying what their view is. You understand? Now we're going to argue through why it's a bad view, but that's what their view is. Okay? Has this been clear so far? I don't want anybody to drown. Okay? I don't want anybody to drown on this. And again, a lot of these things that we, we talk about here, put them in your notes because we're going to come back to them and explain them. So it's not, I'm not trying to confuse you, but you've got to see the big infrastructure before we start digging into the different pieces of it. But it really, it, it really colors where you land if you get this thing wrong. And so if you say the church began with Abraham, all right, then you're going to have a very different view of the church than we do when we say the church began at Pentecost. There's a difference. All right? Some say it began with John the Baptist in Matthew 3. There are some groups that really take this concept of baptism and elevate it up to an essential doctrine. Anybody ever a landmark Baptist church? Or landmarkianism? All right. Well, if you go out and you do a rub search on landmark, L-A-N-D-M-A-R-K, landmark Baptist, what they believe is that they really believe baptism is really important. Really important. But just not any baptism will do. You need to be baptized by someone who was validly baptized by someone who was validly baptized by someone who was validly baptized and, and about you know, 40 of these later by someone who was validly baptized by John the Baptist. Alright? So I'll trace it all the way back to John the Baptist. And this is an essential of their faith. I mean, they're called landmark Baptist churches. Landmarkianism is one of these. And boy, I'll tell you, it's a big deal. You go in there and you, you say, well, I've been baptized. Oh, it doesn't count. You've got to be baptized by us because we, we were baptized by someone who's actually baptized. And there's this book out called Trail of Blood. You can get it. It's called Trail of Blood. And it, tries to, it, it, tries to, it attempts to, to um, trace this valid 
um, people of God back to John the Baptist. All right, it's a big deal. I'm, I'm telling you, denominations are founded over this stuff. You know, you think I'm nuts here. I'm not. I'm telling you, you go out there and you see that you start digging through this. And, and they, to them, it's, it's horrid that you would not be baptized validly. So if you were to join the Landmark Baptist Church, it doesn't matter how many times you're baptized, they would do it again just to make sure you got the valid baptism. All right? But they would go back to Matthew 3 and say, well, the Baptist or, or the, 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 the church began with John the baptizer because baptism is what? One of the central ordinances of the church, right? Well, who's one, who started that? John the Baptist did. Therefore, it must have started with John the Baptist. Okay? Now, we're going to talk about the ordinances of the church in the later on. But what is the significance? I'll, I'll get your appetites going here. What's the significance of baptism? Identification. It has nothing to do with a picture of, and I'm going to be a heretic on this, Picturing the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ. That's not what it's picturing. Now, is it a good picture of that? Yeah, yeah but that's not what's the original intent. When John the Baptist baptized people, what was he baptizing them? To picture the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ? He had no idea what that was. Nobody did. It wasn't that. What was he doing? Identification. When you were baptized under John, you were making a public affirmation that you are identifying with the mission and message of John the Baptist. And that was something that every Jewish person in the first century knew. Because that was common. When you were a Gentile and you were a Gentile proselyte to the Jewish faith, guess what happened right before you became an official Jew? You got baptized. That was, everybody knew that. It was identification. All right? And that's the significance of baptism. It's identification. It's not the mode as much as it's identification. And there are places today, Nepal being one of them, you can convert to Christianity, nobody cares. When you get baptized, you've had it. Because now that's a public affirmation. Ask Nikonur Tamung, I guess. He's one of our missionaries. I think I pronounced his name right. Um, Nikonur. Um, back then, you, you, if you're baptized, now, that's it. That's the official... Not, now you've broken ties with Buddhism or whatever it is. So baptism is identification. Which explains even more why um, the uh, king went after John the Baptist and beheaded him. Yeah. Even though it was a question of the dog. Still. So the, so the next time we have a baptism here, remember the, the central, the central um, what do you call it, significance of the baptism is that person is publicly identifying themselves with what? Christ. Christ. I, 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 I'm, I'm part of the, I want to become part of this church. I'm, I'm part of the body of Christ. I want to publicly affirm my identification with Christ. And we understand that to be the death, burial, and resurrection. There's no problem with that. But that was not the starting understanding of it. And I know that's confusing, but we'll sort it out when we get to ordinances. Yeah. Things in the Bible that happened before 
Okay, Abraham tithed before there was a Mosaic law or before there was a law about giving tenths. Mm -hmm. And another thing that occurred to me in Genesis uh, where God had to take the skin of animals to clothe Adam and Eve, which was before Jesus ever shed his blood, a type of that. So the baptism was a type of the death, burial, and resurrection before John the baptizer and the people getting baptized even knew that's what it ultimately would be. Yeah, and, and my, my response, and I, that's a good point that you bring up because some would say, well, what John the Baptist was doing, even though he didn't know what it meant, yes. all right, he was doing it because God knew what it was going to mean. Right, right. My response to that, then it's meaningless for people to be baptized. They have no idea what they're doing. Mm -hmm. All right. In the case of the animal sacrifices, they knew what that was to signify. The blood was a, was a covering for sin. Now, they didn't have it all sorted out how that final sacrifice was going to come, but they understood even Abel understood that was going to cover his sin. That's why he did it. So there's an understanding. You know, I, I don't believe that God would have you go through a ritual that you have no concept of what the ritual means. And they'll say, well, you know, we'll sort it out in a thousand years and they'll understand it, but I'm just going to have you go through it now. There's got to be some meaning for you at that point where it doesn't mean anything. It, it, you see what I'm trying to get at? And I think in the, in, the, in the sacrifices, there was an understanding of what that was. There wasn't a full understanding, but they certainly knew that that animal was doing something for their sin. It was covering their sin. All right? Which is different than, I think, baptism. Okay? Well, I'm, that's another subject I'll get in a whole lot of trouble on when we get to. All right? I'll get in a whole lot of trouble on that. All right. Uh, uh, Alan, and some of us here have been around here 30 years, but I remember back in the late 80s, uh, I had, they were doing the baptisms here, and they would say, well, they were baptisms, so I don't know if any of you remember this here, they would say, very in like the visit And I used to have a little bit of an issue with that. I remember confronting the, or going to talk with the pastors about it, because I always believe, like Alan, it was for identification. Yes, it's a good somewhat picture, but, but I, that could lead people astray that were out listening in the auditorium. So did you remember that? Yeah. And there are other people that say, if you're not baptized in the name of the Father, Son, Holy Ghost, it's not a valid baptism. You've got to get it all over again. If they don't actually use the Trinitarian formula in the baptism, that's not a valid baptism. See, we've, we've, cre we've taken baptism, we've created this massive mono doctrine that you've got to do it the right way in the right time for the right reason with the right method or it doesn't count. And God's up there keeping some track of who's validly baptized and who isn't. That's not what it's about. It's about identification. Should you do it? Absolutely you should. And I believe that the best New Testament picture is immersion. Yes. That's the best picture. But we make it into something that really isn't. How about if you get sprinkled? That's, that's not... Yeah, I, I know I get in trouble on this. Can we, can we wait till ordinances? At least yes. I... All right. Yes. Right. They, told, they knew what it meant because they were told to repent. Well, what? I mean, I got all these rules here that laid out. I'm already doing it. What are you doing? Why, why do that? Well, by doing that in public, 
you've already ostracized yourself from your family now, and you have identified yourself with another group that's apart from your family. You put some position that you can't turn back to. People were killed back in those days sometimes. I remember back in, in Japan when so-called Christianity came to Japan, I think in the 1500s, and, they, and the, the samurai kind of, and, and the clan kind of run them out. One way to flush out who the Christians were was they had a picture of Jesus they would lay down on the floor and they'd have the whole village come across and step on Jesus' face to show that they were not followers of Jesus. And so if you hesitate with your foot, they got you, they hit you. And so you, you, when you're identified, you know, they, they were, that, they were, they were uh, root you out that way. And the same with, I think, John the Baptist is when you're publicly being baptized with all those sins, they know all the people that saw that and ran back to your town and told mm -hmm. your families, hey, your son just got baptized and your wife, that caused a, a, yeah. a lot of problems. One thing to understand, you know, God wants you to know what you're doing. And one of the differences, I think, between what I would consider true Christianity, true faith, and all the, the, um, the sham ones is that if you're in a system where you'd go through a ritual and you have no idea what it is, it's just that something everybody does, there's no meaning to that. There's no value in that. Um, that's not God. That, that's, God wants you to know what it is you're doing. It's the same thing in prayer. Remember in Matthew 6, God says, when you pray, don't be like the heathen, doing vain repetitions. Think. Now that's hard to do. Because we, we go autopilot on prayer, don't we? God wants you to think about what you're doing. He wants you to reason it out. He, wants to, he doesn't want you just going through something to go through it. Or someone says, well, why would you get baptized? I don't know. You know, it's just something the church told me I had to do. Well, there's, what value is there in that? People had a reason for doing it. Right. And this is what, you know, raised the hue and the cry amongst the leadership of the temple because up to that point, and even the, the rank and file of the Jewish believers or the Hebrew believers um, knew that baptism was for those who were not born Jews. And when they became, when they converted to Judaism, they had to be baptized. Mm -hmm. Right. But John the Baptist called for everyone to be baptized as a statement of their repentance. Right. And that led into Christ's preaching of repentance for salvation. And what it does, when you understand that, it sorts out why was Christ baptized? He didn't have to be baptized for repentance, but what, why was he baptized? And what was he identifying? He wasn't baptized. But he's in heaven. You know, baptism is not essential for your salvation. But when Christ was baptized, well, Christ, was, Christ was not being baptized because he had to repent. There's nothing to repent of. But what was he identifying himself with? The message 
of John the Baptist was to repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And so what Christ's baptism really does is it links up his ministry with John the Baptist's ministry. It's the same ministry. It's not two separate ministries. John the Baptist didn't have a ministry, and then Christ had something else. It was the same thing. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. That, that's my understanding. We'll, we'll talk about it. Right. Right. And you go back in church history, back to John Calvin, one of my great heroes. Um, there's a group called Anabaptists. You know what Anabaptist means? Rebaptize. They're the rebaptized ones. And in fact, John Calvin had some of the Anabaptists put to death for heresy because they were rebaptized. Well, what, what's the problem with that? Well, they believed in believer's baptism. Right? You were baptized as a believer. When you placed your faith in Christ, you were baptized. That's the Anabaptists. We're all Anabaptists. All right? Because that's what we believe. But in that time, baptism was such a big deal. It was something you did as a child, and you never did it again. The only time adults were baptized is if they were coming in from the outside and they had never been baptized as infants. It was a great heresy for you to be baptized again because that was basically um, you stating that your infant baptism was worthless. And that was a sign of treason. I mean, this is a big deal. You go back and read some church history on this stuff. I mean, it was a big deal. Um, when you start working, all the stuff out of baptism, out of something that we take for granted, there are denominations all over the world go back to how were you baptized and when. That, that's really the differences. We covered baptism in public discipline. That was one of the hottest topics we had. People were heated over that. Oh, yeah. And we had a few just in the class, and I think a few of them might even have the church because one of the people said, you know what, I was baptized and maybe I don't need to get baptized on the church. I don't need anything from me and my God. You know, and Out she goes. Our, our point was, look, the scripture says what it says of what baptism is. And even though a person may not have been baptized, may have not have known it, once you know mm -hmm. the purpose of it, and you say, well, I'm not going to do it anyway, that, that, that says something. Right. Well, that's why there's different churches based upon a lot of you, you, you'd be surprised how many denominations are based off of baptism, difference in baptism, and differences in the way you do communion. We're going to find it. We're going to find that out. We had one couple right. in our class who had been going uh, to church for 40 years. They were baptized, I guess, the But they, they asked John and I to baptize them because when they got baptized, it was not for the right reason. They mm -hmm. got baptized in the infant when they had no knowledge on it. See, that's the point. Well, we want to do it now Why did God institute a ritual, whatever that ritual is? What was the purpose of a ritual to be instituted? Why did God do that? That's a sign. If you didn't understand what the sign was, what good's the ritual? Right? When they did Passover, what were they supposed to do during, around the Passover table? The kids are supposed to ask questions. What are we doing this? Why are we doing this? Why? Significance. It's, it's to get... And if, there, if you don't understand why you're doing something... It's a meaningless activity. And you're no better than the pagans who do things just because that's the way it's always been done. Are you, uh, you going to get the difference between dispensationalism? Yeah, we're going to talk about that, okay. eschatology. 
You're gonna. Right. God always wants you to engage your brain. He wants you to know what you're doing. He wants you to think it over. He doesn't want you just to do something because all the other lemmings are headed that direction. He wants you to know why you're doing it. Because that's the only that that's when it makes that's when it's meaningful to you. It's when it makes it's meaningful. God wants you to think. He wants you to know what you're doing. Um, some say it began with Christ. See, I'm moving up. These, these are all different positions that people have. Some say, well, the church began with Christ. Uh, it began at the call of the 12 disciples, 12 apostles. That's when the official group, Christian group, began, the, the first 12. Um, some say, no, it was Peter's confession. Remember Matthew 16, upon this rock I will build my church. So that's Peter's confession. It started then. But what did Christ say? I will. Future. It's not talking about now. It's talking about a future thing. Some say, well, it was at the Last Supper, the institution of the ordinance of communion. That was, that was where they broke with the Passover, and you have a new Passover, which is communion, which we're celebrating today. So that's the start of the church at, at the Last Supper. And some say, no, it began <coughs> on the first Easter Sunday. When Christ rose again from the dead and he came back and then John, he said, he breathed on him and said, receive ye the Holy Ghost. That's when it began. So there's all these different views of when it began. Some say it began at Pentecost in Acts 2. Now, this is where I land. And I think this is where most evangelical scholars will land. It began at Pentecost. It is a separate group distinct from Israel. How do you know that? Well, read Ephesians. You just, need, you, just, you just read the book and you can see that there's a difference between Israel and the church. All right? that, there's, there's, that should be a no-brainer. Right? There's a difference. And um, when, you see, when you look at Matthew 16, Christ said, I will build my church. It's, not, he's, it's now, it's I will. At some point, I will build my church. Um, the resurrection and ascension are essential for the functioning of the church. Why? Well... What empowers the church to do what the church does? Or should I say who? And when did the Holy Spirit come? After the ascension at Pentecost. That's one of the distinctions between... In fact, we're going to talk about this. One of the great distinctions between Israel and the church is that Israel did not have... The people of God in the Old Testament did not have a permanent indwelling of the Holy Spirit like we do. When you become a believer, the Holy Spirit takes up residence in your life. And it's a permanent residency. And we have the Spirit of Christ. In fact, Romans 8 says very clearly, if any man does not have the Spirit of Christ, he is none of his. So 
if you do not have the Holy Spirit, you're not a Christian. Period. Doesn't matter what you believe, you're not a Christian. All Christians have the Holy Spirit. And that's a big distinction between Israel and the church. Now, did the Holy Spirit come upon men in the Old Testament? Sure he did. It came upon Samson, David, others. But there's no permanent indwelling like we have. Because what did Christ say? I'm not going to leave you comfortless, but I will send you another comforter that he may abide with you forever. So there's this comforter that's coming that is a permanent indwelling, which is different than what we have with Israel. And it began <coughs> with the baptism of the Holy Spirit. Now, there's a lot of futz on this. What's the baptism of the Spirit? Well, some theological persuasions say the baptism is when you get um, a divine ecstatic zap and you speak in tongues. That's the baptism. And in fact, what you need to do is you need to seek... If you're a Christian and you've never had that, you need to seek for the baptism of the Spirit where you hit this divine zap and you're catapulted to a new level of spiritual life and maturity and power. Um, that's a lot in the charismatic circles. Benny Hinn, Good Morning Holy Spirit, that's really the thesis of that book, is you get the baptism. And when that book sold really well, he wrote another one called The Anointing, which means you can go beyond the baptism. Now you can get the anointing of the Spirit, which is a, even a higher level. Um, and you sort of work your way up. Uh, yeah, this, the, the, well, the double second blessing, so to speak. Um, well, what does the Bible, what does the scripture say? Well, in 1 Corinthians chapter 12, it talks about baptism of the Spirit. And it gives it to the, probably one of the worst bunch of Christians in the first century. And it basically says that all of you have been baptized into one body. Ephesians says we've all been baptized into one body. What does it mean to be baptized? Well, what is baptism? It comes from the root word, it means to immerse to a depth. But what is the significance of baptism? So what does the Holy Spirit do when you become a Christian? He dunks you in the, whole, in the body of Christ? No, what does he do? He identifies you with the body of Christ. When you become a believer, and this is what we find... The Holy Spirit takes you and places you into the universal body of Christ. You're now part of the church, universal. And if you're not part of the church universal, you're not a Christian. Because when you become a believer, that's what the Holy Spirit does. He places you into the body of Christ. We've all been placed by one spirit into one body. We're all part of that. That's what the baptism of the Spirit is. So if the baptism of the Spirit began at Acts Two, what does that signify about the existence of the church before then? It didn't, because it's, it's new. <laughs> That's the first time the Holy Spirit baptized anyone, and they were baptized into the body of Christ, the universal body of Christ. And we're going to talk about universal and local, but they were baptized in the universal body of Christ in Acts 2. That's when the church began. And I believe that's the best understanding of when the church began. It makes the most sense, and it fits the most scripture. You don't have to do a lot of backflips and handsprings to make it work. So we're, uh, we are uh, of the Catholic Church, small c. Catholic in a sense of universal. Universal. Which is the body of Christ. Okay. And Alan, uh, one of the many proofs, if you will, that that is the right view of when the church began is when the church ends in... Uh, um, there's mention of it in First Thessalonians, but in Revelation, where when it's well 
Second Thessalonians. Mm -hmm. Anyway, uh, when it's taken out, it's because the spirit is removed, the church is removed, raptured out. Yeah, there, there comes an end of the church. Romans 11 even talks about that. And okay. that's, the, that's where it, this dovetails into the eschatology part. Right. Where, where the church had a beginning, the church uh -huh. has an end. Right. All right? It's not a forever thing. But now in covenant theology, you just see it as a, the church is there until Christ comes and establishes the eternal state and all is done. All right? There is no millennium. There's no rapture. There's none of that stuff. Um, others, and, and this is where the hyper-dispensationalists come in. Um, they come in and say, no, the church didn't begin in Acts chapter 2. It began with Paul. And there are several flavors of these guys that you're going to run into in your life if you live that long. Um, some say it began with the conversion of Paul in Acts 9. And why is that? Well, prior to the conversion of Paul, what was the major constituency of the church? What ethnic group? Jews. And Paul was the, the apostle to who? The Gentiles. So it began with his conversion in Acts 9. There's a few of them that believe this. Some said, no, it began at his first missionary journey. What was that? Well, he went to Iconium, Lister, Derby, Antioch of Pisidia, and he established churches there. That's when the church began. It began with the ministry of Paul when he established these churches in Asia Minor. That's when it started. And some say, no, it started at the time of his Roman imprisonment. End of Acts. When Paul was in Rome, it started then. All right? Now, people who believe this are really hot on this. I mean, they're really hot on this. In fact, I think if you, if you all remember, there was somebody in our class a little while ago that this was a major deal to him. When did the church begin? And if he didn't get the right answer to that, he would argue with me until the cows came home. All right? Look, folks, the church began in Acts 2. And there are some people that want to make this out to be this massive, important kind of concept. And here's why they do that. This, it's, it's why they do it. This is pretty interesting. Those who buy into this group, and you can go out on the Internet, by the way, and you can find all different stripes. You can do that. You can do your own research and find this out. But one of the common threads is they want to they want to compartmentalize the scriptures. Now let me tell you, explain what you mean by that. Dispensationalists basically say that God has dealt with men in different ways over time. Has he done that? Is that a true statement? Has God dealt with men different ways? Yeah, he has. So there's, there's truth to that. You know, in the Old Covenant, how did God mediate his rule in the Old Covenant? Through the sacrificial system, all right? How does God mediate his rule in the New Covenant? Through the Holy Spirit, through the church, all right? So we understand that, there, that, that God has mediated his rule different ways in different times. That's, that's the basic framework of dispensational, all right? But what they want to do is they want to take that further. So what they will say is this, for example. A hyper-dispensationist will say when it comes to Matthew, the Gospel of Matthew. Look, the Gospel of Matthew is good to give us an understanding of history and what Jesus is, but Matthew was not written to you, so you don't have to worry about what's in it. In other words, the Sermon on the Mount, don't need to study that. 
That's written to a Jewish person. You're a Gentile. You don't need to worry about the Sermon on the Mount. Forget that. You don't need to study it. It doesn't apply to you. Just ignore it. In fact, you should probably ignore Mark, Luke, and John along with it because those were all written to the Jewish people. That was written before the church. Um, Christ was speaking to people that existed before the church began. So anything that was said there is not applicable to you. I'm not making this up. That's what they believe. So what is applicable to you? Well, what's applicable to you is what was written to the church. So what would that be? Paul's epistles. That's where you need to go. Forget the rest of the Bible. I mean, it's okay to go there to sort of get a big framework of history and the Bible stories are good and all of that, but nothing in the Old Testament really applies to you. Nothing in the Gospels apply to you. Acts, that doesn't apply to you. Um, worry about Romans through Philemon. And you can bag Hebrews, James, 1st, 2nd Peter, 1st, 2nd, 3rd John, Jude, Revelation, because that's written to the Jewish people. So... You're stuck with Paul's epistles. And if you're really hyper, hyper dispensationalist, you say, well, not even all of that refers to you. Really, what refers to you is Paul's pastoral epistles, First and Second Timothy and Titus, and you can spend the rest of your life studying that and bag the rest of Scripture and you'll be okay. Because that's what's written to you. That's the only thing that you need to obey. See what they're doing? So you ask a hyper-dispensationalist, oh, let's do a study of James. No, I don't need to do a study of James. That's written to the Jewish people. That, that applies to them. It doesn't apply to me. So I don't have to do anything in the book of James. It's, it's irrelevant to me. All the commands of James, forget it. I don't have to worry about them. Hebrews, Hebrews is written to Hebrew people. It's not written to me. I don't need to worry about what's in Hebrews. It's a superfluous book. Now, if I'm a Jew, then I have to worry about that. And some will even go and say, well, there's a Jewish church. And what do they do? Well, they've got to worry about the general epistles. James, Hebrews, 1st, 2nd, 3rd John, Jude, Revelation, and Peter. That, that's what they worry about. But they can't, a person in that church doesn't worry about what's in Romans because Romans is written to the Gentile people. It's not written to the Jewish person. And so what they've done is they've chopped the scripture up and compartmentalized it to such an extent that the only part of scripture that you need to pay attention to is a part that was written to you. Well, the problem with that is what does it say in 1 Timothy, right? That's one of their, if you're, if you're a hyper hyper, you at least believe that. What does it say there? What did Paul tell Timothy? All scripture is inspired by God. given by inspiration of God and is what? Profitable. Profitable. Well, they don't like that verse. They skip over it. Um, but you're going to run into these people. You're going to run into them in this area. I mean, Paul told Timothy that from a child thou hast known the holy scriptures, which are able to make thee wise unto salvation. Yeah. All right? There's no indication in the New Testament that they chopped this stuff up and compartmentalized it. Now, now let me ask a question. Generally, is there an element of truth to their assertion? Only an element. There's an element of it, right? Because Matthew, for instance, in the Gospel, <coughs> the I mean, there's an element in which not every promise in the Bible it directly belongs to me. Not every passage is necessarily written for me, right? But I can apply the rules of biblical interpretation to know the difference. 
we don't go and kill goats, do we? Anybody bring their goat to the church service today to have it slaughtered? On the no, why? Because we understand that there was a difference. And that was written to a group of people under the Old Covenant, and we understand that. So, of course, there's an element of truth to this. But to go and, and, and create this, this hyper-compartmentalized view of Scripture where the only pieces of Scripture you need to worry about are pieces that are, in their mind, directly addressed to you is false. That, that, there's, no, there's no indication that that is the way you deal with Scripture, that, especially to the point where you bag the rest of it, where you don't even need to study it. Matthew chapter 5, 6, and 7, Sermon on the Mount, does that apply to you? Yes. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. I mean, it doesn't matter whether you're Jew or Gentile, that makes sense, right? We understand that, but what they do is they compartmentalize this to the point that only certain pieces of the scripture. Um, if you read anything by Stam, S-T-A-M, he's into this. Um, I'm trying to think of some of the other names. I, I took them off the notes here. But uh, depending on what circles you run into, you can run into people that basically say there are two gospels. There's a gospel to the Jew and a gospel to the Gentile. There's two separate gospels. There's two methods of salvation in the, in the scripture. There's one for the Jew and there's one for the Gentile. I mean... The, you understand, if you get this, the nature of the church wrong, you get the doctrine of the church wrong, you get the origin of the church wrong, you can wind up all over the place. Lord knows where you're going to end up. Yeah? I've never run into one of those types of religions, but where would they turn to when trials come? Did they just bag Psalms and Proverbs? They would see, they, they would only see the, the rest of Scripture is just. Um, for historical validation, but they would not go to it for any promise. For any comfort. Or any, yeah. Well, that was good for David, but you know, David's not me. That was written to David. That was written to them, so I don't need to worry about that. It's, it's a very, and I'll tell you, they're very passionate about this. I mean, they, they, this is like the thing that defines their existence. And here's one of the things you need to understand, just as an aside, and we'll, we'll stop with this. When you run into somebody, anybody, where their spin on the church or their spin on eschatology is the reason for their existence and all they want to do is argue and scrap and fight about you know, when did the church begin or when's the timing of the rapture or something like that, they are off base. You understand what I'm trying to get at? I ran, into, I ran into a guy many years ago in this church. He had all the eschatology down. He could tell you all the theories about eschatology. And his home life was a wreck. The guy was a bad testimony. There's something wrong with that. What does God want? God wants you to be holy. God wants you to be pure. God wants you to be a godly person. And it's okay to talk about these things. And, and we need to understand where people are coming from. But when your entire ministry is, is based around some spin of the church or some spin of... Um, eschatology, you're off base. There are people that stop going to churches and they only have, I remember one guy I used to, in our church way long ago, he said, well, the Bible doesn't have any concept of the, the, you know, the church building, so they met in homes. And he withdrew from the church and he would have church at his house. And that, that's where he had church. And if you didn't have church at the house, you were sinning against God by going down to the church building. I'm not making it up. People are passionate about this stuff. And when you get into there, you've got a real problem. You got a real problem because you're, you're out of balance. Do you understand what I'm trying to get at here? 
you're out of balance. So, now, I apologize, we went over a lot of topics. We had a lot of things. But I hopefully I've set the table a little bit here, all right? And we'll sort through all of these things as we work our way through the next few weeks. So, any, any questions or anything? Or Hopefully I've been somewhat clear. Yeah. It's been hard to try and clarify it, but... All right. Well, let's uh, close in prayer then. Father, thank you for this day that you've given to us and help us to ponder and think about these things and bring us back safely next week to study them further in Christ's name. Amen.